This week, strong woman Harriet Walker, a credit practicing dietitian and sports dietitian, joins Dr. Mack and myself to discuss metabolic adaptations to weight loss, how that impacts the individual. We're chatting reverse dieting, recovery dieting, time-restricted eating, fasting, if it fits your macro, paleo, lots more. Harriet, we're stoked you answered your phone. Let's get this going. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want, and should know about health, fitness, nutrition, and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. All information provided in the podcast is the opinion of the individual and other contributors and does not represent the policy, procedure, or opinion of any other corporate entity or third party. Warning, this Body Science Podcast occasionally contains strong language, which may be unsuitable for children unusual humor which may be unsuitable for some adults and advanced science which may be unsuitable for bro science majors stay tuned the body science podcast is about to start burn the fat and feed the muscles with this high protein low carb low fat best tasting daily protein powder hydroxy burn lean 5 proteins are released in a sustained chronological order therefore maintaining their different absorption rates, fast and slow, ensuring constant muscle fuel so you stay fit, happy and healthy. This synergistic blend also includes 17 vitamins and minerals, added carnitine and a proprietary blend of digestive enzymes, Digizyme and Arafti prebiotic to aid digestive health. It's podcast time. It's all about being fit, happy and healthy today. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mack. Guy team, what's up? What's up? Whatever that was. <laughs> that was terrible. That was terrible, but keep going. Speaking of terrible, how's your Instagram account any better? <laughs> My Instagram account is on fire. Okay. Still, I'd like to thank He's the five followers for mum, dad, and my two kids. At the Dr. Mac, if you want to waste five minutes of your time. No, it's looking really good. It is? Mm. Okay, beautiful. What's really important today, we have an accredited sports dietitian on, Harriet Walker. That's me. If you want to catch Harriet, it's you're ready for this, get a pen, at... Harriet Walker underscore athletic eating. That's you got it right the first time. Well done. And that is your website as well. dot com dot au. Harrietwalker.com.au. Because you are all going to want to go there after this podcast. Soon to be Drake athletic eating. Athletic eating. Oh really? Oh. Okay. Well, now you're confused, everyone. We will put it at the bottom of the notes, bodyscience.com.au forward slash podcast. Today, we're going to talk about metabolic adaptations to weight loss and why they impact the individual. I've been around this for a little bit. We've had a little bit of a chat about this. There's some good stuff coming up. I'm excited about this. Perfect. Yeah, so there's a fair bit of ground to cover. So I think we're going to just make our way through it. What we're going to talk about now is what to expect post-comp. Well, let's go straight to fitness industry. So we've in a, pre- in a couple of previous comp- podcasts, we've talked about comp prep. We've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, different strategies leading into peak week and how people manipulate their training and diet and that sort of thing. And so we thought it might be a progression on that. We've got the nutrition person in the room to give us uh, that perspective on things. So reverse dieting, recovery dieting, all that sort of stuff. So Lane Norton in the social media world, Eric Helms, these guys put a lot of information out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably worthwhile for us to have a chat around you know, some of the approaches to that and even from a, um, a registered uh, practicing dietitian's perspective, what your experience yeah, might be, yeah. value in it, yes, no, what do you think, or just not even just for the athletic population but for the average person. Yeah, maintaining you know. weight loss Yeah, after. I think, yeah, if you go on a diet, I actually think, I don't know, just for my 10 cents worth, I mean, if you, people go on a some sort of regime, they should probably reverse out of most things, I yeah. would think. Let's roll with it. Just yeah, let's see what you start. think. I mean, yep. 
I, th- I suppose where I'm coming from, like I've competed myself in figure. So I did that a few years ago and I work with a lot of fitness figure athletes as well as a lot of athletes who are making weight. There's a couple of different arms to the sort of the aftermath and I think it's a topic that gets discussed more now, but there's still a lot of, a lot of work to go in terms of getting the evidence-based practice to follow up with, you know, a lot of the bodybuilding stuff has been happening for years and we're probably just catching up with the evidence-based practice off the back of that. So the first one I'd be looking at is, okay, so what's psychologically going on with the person you know coming off a comp prep you know you might be doing anywhere between 12 and 24 weeks some people you know they Mm -hmm. might do a full year prep so Mm -hmm. psychologically there's a lot going on there we've got to make sure that they're being looked after from that perspective and then look we've got to look at the implications of um you know dieting being in a chronic calorie deficit on the individual's metabolic rate hormones associated with weight maintenance weight regain and whatnot and then so people's preoccupation with food 100%. becomes a massive issue around just their attitudes, right, yeah. towards... There's a, there's a really big culture, I think. I think it, I would call it a culture whereby people are hoarding food, yeah. waiting for when they get off stage. Yeah. And that nosedives them straight away into a potential blowout. Mm. I like to have the conversation with my clients early before they've gotten on stage about how you handle the aftermath because if they're talking to other people and they're hoarding food, it does set you up for that sort of potential risk of disordered eating. You go, you go from restriction 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 and we know you know dieting is kind of like a bow and arrow the harder you diet you're pulling back and back and back the further you're going to fling forward nice analogy greg I like that. I like it a lot. Yeah, sorry. I was thinking about train thought gone. I'm thinking Rambo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the forest with his bow and arrow. Nice. But I mean, the first thing you want to be doing is having that conversation early, and we're thinking about basically what do we need to get back on track to establish behaviours. And and I like to transition people from you know an aesthetic based sport to maybe looking at okay, what what can we give you that's going to help you transition into more performance based. Mm -hmm. So automatically they're thinking about how do I go from eating for aesthetics to eating for performance and that sits a little bit better with people I reckon because they're not thinking about their abs they're not thinking about you know losing their quad cuts <laughs> they're yep. thinking about how do I fuel my body as an athlete to perform and I find eating for performance is a lot more of a positive approach you know from a psychological eating pattern perspective than eating for you know aesthetics yeah, because yeah. we all know those people on the front of the cover I think it's well established now they don't look like that all year sure. round and if they are, they're doing something that we don't know about. You know mm. what I mean? So you have a philosophy around – so you, some of the sort of classic reverse diet or whether it's a, a recovery diet or whatever, you, whatever yeah. you want to call it. So there's some pretty popular stuff out there in social media, like some pretty conservative protocols around yeah. a, a, a reintroduction of, you know, all sort of macros and that sort of thing. And then there's a couple of people, Eric Helms and a couple of other people out there who are a bit more aggressive in terms of their – uh, return to say uh, a certain weight. Yeah, absolutely. You got a you got a general philosophy around that. Look, I think there's theory and then there's practice. So mm. there is starting to pop out with a bit of theory on you know increasing ten percent calories per week and doing yep. it step by step. In practice, it's is different. People are yeah. uh, they like to think that they're doing a reverse diet and they end up diving first like face first into the closest McDonald's drive through, and it might not be food that they ever wanted to eat mm. prior to competing. Mm. So I think it's good to prepare people and I you know I try and give 
clients a plan mm. for afterwards because they're in the routine of meal prepping. Yep. I would say, look, there is research on the more aggressive and I think the, the faster you can get people back up to a normal eating habit, the better. But, I mean, you also have to sort of look at the individual that you're looking at and go, okay, where are they at psychologically? Some people mm. bounce back really nicely and if they're an athlete and they did it for the right reasons, they competed because it was a challenge and they don't, they're not really too hung up on their body comp, they tend to recover really well mm-hmm. and they're happy to establish a, mm. an eating behaviour like they did before they started. Mm. Then you've got the people who might have used competing as a weight loss tool and they're the people that a little bit of extra structure probably would be beneficial, walking them back up. And then we look at the research around hormonally. Mm. We know that we get a reduction in thyroid function. We know we get some leptin ghrelin playoffs. Uh, our body's driving us to eat more and we can only ignore that for so long. So we get that increased in ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. We get a suppression of leptin, which is sort of satisfaction hormone and a lot of the research is looking at look if done properly i think trexler did some really good work on the implications of dieting for athletes and we're looking at how quickly do those hormones go back to normal after introduction of calories post-dieting there's a lot of talk about metabolic damage and i look i think people just eat too much i'm not discrediting there are in some cases we do get some thyroid dysfunction we do get some slow lowered you know metabolic patterns i also think there's that psychological that like i was talking about before the further you pull back the harder you go forward i've been there like when i i was 10 percent body fat when i was competing yeah so it was going to be my next question actually like what did you yeah, do yeah i got i got a little bit chubby did you yeah that's how i got into strongman actually i got a little bit chubby and i stayed a little bit chubby what happened there i don't want to say anything but uh <laughs> that's harsh Wow, this I think there's a table between well, us. I tell you I what, you're absolutely spot up. on. Wow. <laughs> All right, it's going to be like that. I didn't think it was going to be like that, but okay. <laughs> so how Good. big a problem is this? It depends if you make it a problem, and it, it is it is an attitude thing. People who go into competing as a weight loss tool, they think they're going to stay that lean, are generally the ones who come out the worst. Mm-hmm. People who've got mm-hmm. a good coach, coach dietitian mm. i would like to think a sports dietitian is a really great person to be working with and your coach like your actual training coach to come out of it it depends on the person like yeah. it's a plan how many coaches are consulting with you look i generally chase them up it's the other way around, the other way around. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I i'd be very happy to talk to any but the thing is it's a bit of a ground thing you know um people think that they're doing yeah, their we, thing we... And, and, and i'm going to tread on their feet but <clears throat> you know i think there's room for everyone in mm. and there needs to be room for everyone if you're looking at the person who you're working with well-being at the forefront which is where it should always be yeah definitely we talked about that in, in the previous <laughs> podcast around the whole comp prep coach side of things and you know trying to find someone who can i guess lead you in the right direction in terms of the, the overall you know training nutrition comp prep side of things because there's, there's a lot going on a lot of moving parts to it and it's challenging particularly in the physique industry now online coaches versus mm. face-to-face a lot of cookie cutter stuff going on with people just you know rolling out you know fifty dollars a week sort of thing and i'll do a you know, a, a yeah. fourteen week preparation for you, and it's yeah, you know, it doesn't really tick all the boxes. And and most of those, as a really general comment, are, are going to drive people's calories into the floor. Mm. You know, under eight hundred calories a week type uh, a day. Yeah. Sorry, uh, type week, of wow. yeah, I know that's not very many calories. Of, you know, wow. So lean on and, that. Yeah, wow. you'll get really, <laughs> really lean on really that. Rich. It's actually <laughs> Macca's special. Um, Wait, there's a special at Macca's. There's a special at Macca's. <laughs> 
It's one burger. It's 800 calories. Oh, you can only have one a week. Shout out to McDonald's. There goes um, my that's right. <laughs> so it's hard to, you know, yeah, get some stuff done. Yeah. But uh, And the other thing is just ramp the cardio up. So if you do two hours of cardio yeah. and you drive your calories yeah. into the floor, you're going to lose weight. You're gonna, like we've said before, you're going to lose a ton of muscle on your way there, yeah. which defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do. That's the bodybuilding. It's, it's all about how do we maintain that lean muscle mass and reduce the body fat. Mm. And we can do a lot of different things to lose weight, but is it quality weight? And that's mm. where I think, you know, the sports dietitian is the well-placed person from a scientific background to understand the physiological impacts of dieting and to handle it. Obviously, we know that bodybuilding isn't going to be the most healthy sport probably for the last eight weeks of it. Like yeah. it's, it's very unsustainable practice. But if somebody wants to do it, Mm. They're better off in the hands of somebody who kind of has a pretty good handle on what's going on physiologically and mm. psychologically. And I think knowing the – having competed myself and cutting weight for sport on a regular basis, I know the ins and outs of psychologically what can be the impacts and figuring out how do I minimise harm to, mm. the, to the person. So it can be done really well and it can be quite a positive experience for people. But in the wrong hands, this whole this is what I do, this is what you should do approach to dieting, I have a really big problem with. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who you know post this is what I eat every day. People are looking at it going, oh, okay, but it doesn't take into account, you know, it might be a mum of four looking at this going, okay, so if I eat 1,200 calories and train for two hours a day, it's like I actually there is no reason that people need to know what I eat. I'm more concerned about what they're eating Hmm. because there is so much individual variation on intake that needs to be taken into account that it it actually should be completely irrelevant what I eat. Like I post pictures of my meals purely for, you know, I'm addicted to Instagram. How many calories in that? Um, At least a 1,000 for (laughs) breakfast. Uh, Mm. (laughs) Nice. I like it. But it's like anything, like the, the sports dietitians probably haven't had a huge presence in the physique comp mm. space. Yeah, I mean, I certainly in sport. That. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you look at professional sports in Australia, professional like AFL, NRL, you know, the sports dietitian or the, or the dietitian is certainly going to be associated with those types of yeah, sports. Massive yeah, massive part of it. Whereas the physique side of it has much more been, you know, industry-based, a lot of PTs or comp prep coaches. And there is this perception that maybe the sports dietitian may or may not be the right place to go. Yeah. And I think, but it's like anything, you got to shop around, right? Like it's, it, it doesn't matter whether it's an optometrist, a physio, you know, they'll have an area of specialization and it's yep. the same with nutrition. 100%. And, you know, there are people who concentrate on, you know, pediatric nutrition, older pops, sports, all that sort of things. So the information for the for the listener is is all about there are people out there. Yeah. So look at qualifications. Yeah, look around. Look at, look at their credentials, look at their background, look at their experience. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I think, you know, there are definitely some sort of what we would call physique coaches who do walk the walk and do mm. a great job at keeping up to date with the with the science. So yeah. that's not to say that, you know, it's the only way. But there's definitely a lot more evidence based to it, which is fantastic. It's informing practice. Mm. And a lot, a lot of the old school stuff, you know, I think you'll find like even around water loading for bodybuilding competitions. I know mm. I've done some emailing with mm. helms on, okay, mm. where did this come back from? Like, where did this even start and mm. why are we still doing it mm. and does it have a place mm. so we look at water manipulation for making weight versus water manipulation for bodybuilding yep. two very different reasons for doing it yep. one works one is completely useless mm. exactly take. so and and you mentioned the, the qualification so that's my bugbear you know i'm all about checking out people that you work with make sure they've got bona fide qualifications and you know there's a reason that the vocational education um industry had to come up with ways to avoid 
uh, plagiarism and copying of certificates for Cert threes and fours. So now RTOs have to have a way in which they authenticate their yeah. qualifications because a lot of people were just getting their friend's certificate, photocopy it, and you know make it look like they've got a Cert three and four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. RTOs, yeah. yeah. And what so. About- Oops, Absolutely. No, no, no. So, you know, check people out. How do we check out who we talk to? Is that from the uh, accredited sports dietitian perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, there's the uh, SDA, so Sports Dietitians Association of Australia. So that's the one that we would go through for sports dietitians, you know, just for your regular, like there's lots of different specialisations in dietetics. So there would be like accredited practising dietitians. So I'm both. So I each year I have to do X amount of, you know, professional development hours to make sure that I'm up to date with the latest research. And I'm probably doing well beyond that, like myself personally, but I think a lot of the people who are in the industry are very dedicated to staying up to date with best practice. Pretty good. And so That's from pretty a, good plug for yourself. Yeah, plug I liked there. it. I liked it. <laughs> with, the, uh, with the fitness industry, how much of that time's being spent like talking competition dieting and I assume that the money's coming to from people towards NRL, AFL, Olympic nah, sports. Oh man, there's. Am I incorrect in saying that? Like, I'm, I'm not... in the SDA. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. How many, how many, sports? how many people there would be? Over, I mean, you've competed, you get it. Yeah. How many people in the SDA would be? Um, you're probably not going to make a lot of friends with what the answer coming is, and I apologise for putting you there. But look, I think what we don't want is people contacting the wrong people. Like, yeah, but I hmm. think I mean, and also there's the um, I think as a community, there's always the. We refer to each other. I think there's there's a good handful of people, especially up here in Brisbane, Gold Coast area, there's a lot of really high-quality sports dietitians who are working in the area. And, look, a lot of people are very happy to refer on. If if I get somebody who wants to do an ultramarathon, like, I can give them the basics, but I know that my mate down the road who's a better sports dietitian in that area, I'm going to refer them on. Yeah, nice. You know, that's important. Mm-hmm. To know it, it just keeps our work well, it keeps my work credible, and I think people enjoy the fact that I can say, Oh, look, that's not my that's not my lane. Yeah, Stay in your lane, man. That's my thing until I start running ultra marathons. 100%. Oh, I couldn't oh, agree more. You've always got next week. How many um accredited sports dietitians are there in Australia? Oh, man, I don't even know that number off the top of my head, but are we there'd be thousands, a few hundreds, hundreds. Oh, yeah, hundreds. Be hundreds. So each state's got a body. We meet on the ring, we have a couple of low carbohydrate beers. Nah, we have the full ones, <laughs> you know. And so there's, there's a fidget the, macros, I suppose. Well, that's the next yeah. great recovery topic, fluid, right? you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. It's got some carbs. Yeah. You know, it's got a little bit of everything in there. Rehydration. Plus, yeah. plus, plus, plus. Yeah, but yeah. look, I think, I think the, one, the one thing that comes down is the person that you're working with is holding your personal welfare at the forefront and they're not afraid to have those fierce conversations if it's coming to the point where the person might not be doing it the correct way. you got to make sure that people feel like they've been listened to as well. I'm an expert in terms of nutrition knowledge, but I'm not an expert on the person who's sitting in front of me. They're the expert in them, and I help them apply the knowledge okay. research. So, Fair enough. Yeah. Nice. I like it. Does that lead into a conversation around the concept of metabolic flexibility? Do we do, do we cover that? Do we talk about that? We haven't, but I no. think that's that's probably. We might uh, just define what that means first before we step forward. It's well, when you look at fuel mix, so in terms of carbohydrates, fats, proteins being used as a source of energy to fuel performance, so we call that fuel mix as a you know shorthand. Metabolic flexibility is referring to the ability for an individual to be able to utilize efficiently either fats or carbohydrates. So when we're looking at, say, like a ketogenic diet, 
the goal being that that person becomes highly adapted to use fat as energy. So their body is um, upgrading the machinery that uses fat as energy to be, in order to be able to do that more effectively. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, we would be looking at pers- somebody who's a carb adapted. So I, I think everybody would be that mm. <laughs> if they're eating just a regular Sounds diet. Good. What we're looking mm. at in terms of metabolic flexibility, for a very long time it's been quite a sort of a dichotomy, you're either fat adapted or you're carb adapted. But what we are looking at now, and there's some really cool information about periodizing your carbohydrate intake and becoming adapted so that, you know, you might do a block of training whereby you're, you know, you're looking to adapt that fat utilization. And so you might go low carb for uh, you know, train low carb for, you know, an eight-week block of training, understanding that you're probably not going to get the best quality training. You're not going to be necessarily getting PBs in that block, but you know that when you come out of it, I'm going to be better off at utilizing fats Mm. and then introducing back carbohydrates for when you want to perform. So it's basically splitting performance down the middle of adapting. So when are you trying to adapt during training and when are you trying to perform? And so you're periodizing your diet so that, there's a time when competition is probably further away that you're adapting to training because training is all one big quest for adaptation towards a a better performance. And then you've got the time when you need to go and you need to do your best and that's when we're looking at carbohydrate as a substrate. So that's what we, I suppose, Mm. it's a very long-winded way of sort of uh, metabolic flexibility is probably the goal now rather than being one or the other when it comes to sports performance. Mm. Okay. And it makes sense. I mean, we talk about cycling training with, with you know, different periodization strategies around strength and speed mm. and power and that sort of thing. I don't know. But if you say to someone, it's an all or nothing type of scenario, like you said, people get bored, right? I know certainly my philosophy is around, well, let's, let's mix it up. Let's do, you know, whether it's high fat, whatever it might be for a block, then go into another block carb cycle. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. From an adaptation perspective, I think there's good there's good merit in in doing that. Mm. You know, to to look at yeah. identifying you know adaptation performance. We'll, we'll probably get there with keto, but there's some limit. Well, there are some performance based limitations around you know a high fat diet, with mm. a, like ketogenic diet, and some of the concerns around that whole. So one of the concerns is around energy availability for yep. performance yep. For, for a high fat type of diet, and, and the whole pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. It has to do with the availability of ATP fundamentally. Do you just want to explain what that means to us humans? Well, well, <laughs> so pyruvate is, is, is sort of a key uh, component of what's called the TCA cycle, Krebs cycle, energy production, ATP yep. production. And part of that is the conversion by an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase to acetyl-CoA. And one of the key elements associated with that is oxaloacetate. And so that's where we can take products like alpha-lipoic acid, which tends to, I don't know, Harriet, I'm staying in my lane here, but certainly there's, there's some philosophies of some of the work I've read by Dom D'Agostino mm-hmm. and those type of uh, in researchers around the utilisation of things like alpha-lipoic acid as a as a, a, a substance that can facilitate uh, that pyruvate process mm-hmm. that probably dampens the effect. Uh, but one of the concerns has been around that availability of energy, carbs, you yeah, know, you know, so performance versus adaptation, you know, versus, I guess, cycling things and, and moving it around and... You know, there's a whole range of pros and cons yep. with, with all of these types yeah. of diets. It's, it's not, like I said, it doesn't have to be dichotomous. It doesn't have to be black and white. And I think I like to think things more of a, of a, a spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, look, it's, you know, everyone wants to be, like it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer when you're like, oh, it depends, mm. but it really does depend. Yeah. There are benefits to, you know, we know from research it shows us that you might get some positive body composition changes from a high-fat diet. 
And some people might just prefer a high-fat diet, and I'm cool with that. Hmm. If that's their personal preference, we'll work with it. doesn't reduce the fact that, you know, when it comes to, like, are you going to win or are you not, in that split second, generally speaking, we're looking at carbohydrates as a substrate to use for that winning edge. Yep. But, you know, we might, like I've, I've worked with a, um, a couple of athletes in terms of manipulating their carbohydrate intake so that we don't necessarily have to reduce total carbohydrate, but we might actually uh, manipulate carbohydrates so that they are in a low carbohydrate state for a training session couple of times a week and then refuel them for when they need to perform so if they, yep. they might be doing a training block where we'll get them to do a long steady state ride in the morning fasted and then the night before we had them doing some exhausted or exhaustive you know flat out sprint so we've totally squeezed all the glycogen out of their muscles we've done they've slept low so they haven't replenished after training which is what we'd normally get people to do and then the next day they're feeling pretty crappy <laughs> get them to go for a really long ride <laughs> wow i am never going to be one of your athletes but and the th- the, that's that's a really great point because this is very high-end stuff we're mm. talking people who are winning medals mm. who are doing this stuff if you're not eating vegetables like sleeping have a well-structured training program and eating regular meals this stuff is like useless i get to use this with one percent of my clients yeah, okay and i was really excited when i got to do it because i was like oh i've been reading about this in textbooks <laughs> yeah. for years but nobody you got to go through the rites of passage in terms of actually being able to eat properly and knowing what's what before you can start doing this technical stuff and how did mm. athlete go really well yeah gold of the com games Boom. gold of the com Boom. game i'm gonna clap that in Boom. thank you thank That's you australian athlete yep australian yeah. athlete yeah, really fantastic stuff. But I worked very closely with her coach, mm-hmm. and that's so. That's a, that was mm. when she, he was programming. I'm not going to program her cycling. I'm a I'm a dietitian. I can't get a cyclist to go faster unless I'm just yelling at them. We're working closely with them. They're programming, so we said, okay, we want this person to sleep low. So they programmed, you know, some exhaustive sprints, and then we told them to sleep low. So can we talk about the dietitian coach role here more than the athlete for a second? So in terms of working with a coach, it's a really important relationship if you can swing it. The ideal world, you're touching base once a week and you're looking at their programming. You know, when I'm working with an athlete who's overseas, I might, if I'm lucky, I get sent their training program for the next two weeks. And I'm basing their diet changes around that. When we're doing something very specific like carbohydrate manipulation, I'm making sure that they're across the research I'm across the research. We both know what outcomes we're looking for from this adaptation block and they're programming the training to facilitate that on Wednesday we're doing X, Y, Z and on Thursday they're training low. Okay. So if you can swing it, it's fantastic. Like it's it's hmm. it's a really nice relationship. But I, again, it's it's just being able to own your own work and then understand that there's going to be other people who know more than you. And Maka, from an S and C coach perspective, how are you guys work with dietitians these days? Yeah, it's the same thing. So it should be a really sort of uh, collegial type of arrangement <laughs> where. You stay in your lane, like we keep saying, but in a performance-based environment, one of the things I I always look for, if as a strength conditioning coach, it's impossible to be across everything, mm-hmm. right? So you've got you want to use the or engage the dietitian to be a resource for research and all that sort of stuff yeah. and what's new and what's different and bring that stuff to the table, uh, different ideas around how we might be able to do things differently. I think that's what that's the key. And then an individualised approach. I mean, we all talk about, you know, in team sport, everything's individual, rarely, but that does happen from time to time. Yeah. And, you know, different athletes will re- have different needs across 
whether it's weight gain, weight loss, whatever it might be, older older uh, athletes need to maintain things, whatever. You know, in a team sport environment, you, you get a really diverse mix of needs. So, say in the football environment, you'll have a group of four or five young guys all living in one house together. No one can cook. <laughs> no one's interested in cooking. No one shops. No one wants to shop. How do they maintain, you know, a, a healthy diet? And how do yep. they have a, a diverse macros uh, input in, on a daily basis? Yep. And so that can be a challenge. And so we've got to come up with different strategies yep. around how you can do that, as opposed to the to the younger athlete who might still live at home, you know, yep. who may not have a lot of control over what mum puts on the table. Yep. And so, and there's also one of the things I find I found. You know, early on in my strength conditioning career, so we used to do the cooking workshops. We do the shopping center tours. We take them to the, the supermarket and show them what a ripe banana looks like. And you know, it's <laughs> yeah. not it's not out. It's not a crazy idea. Assume nothing. Assume nothing. You know, show people how to read a food label. You know, why things are stacked at different levels on shelves in 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 supermarkets and things like that. Good choices around different brands, even of different foods and condiments or whatever it might be. And then we used to do you know we do a lot of cooking workshops and and give people some rudimentary skills around how to prepare some meals because they may not I could name some names that I won't but you know there's some people who struggle to boil water you know and so and have never had to and now all of a sudden they're living in a house I told you that in private I know right (laughs) I'm sorry I breached that confidence straight away Um, I had to had to throw it in there you know there's a whole range of not just not just the nutrition, but the the availability of it, uh, and and at a really elite level, often teams will provide meals, um, breakfast and lunch and that sort of thing. And you can only control what goes on under your roof in terms of the training facility. Once they leave and they get in their car and they drive home and they get petrol, they go to the service station and they buy, you know, whatever it might be, two liters of coke and a. Mars bar, well, what are you going to do, right? There's some, there's an education component to that as well. So the strength and conditioning coach's relationship with the, the nutrition uh, professional is really, really important. And so you look to them quite a lot just for doing skin folds and, and yeah. getting the body comp measures. It's about being engaged in the process, have a be across what the what the training cycle is and what we're trying to achieve, and yeah, you know who needs what. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all that sort of thing. Yeah, and that doesn't matter whether it's whatever the sport is, into the physique science side of things or whatever it might be, travel, you know, it, yeah. it's important. You know, the, the dietitian needs to be across and, and will often go ahead of the team and make sure that wherever we're staying, hotels-wise, you know, that we've got the right foods that we need to have when we get there. And, yeah, you know, there's a lot of working parts within that. So it's it's important. Well, let's pull this back a little bit to talking about a, a few specific types of diets that are hitting the uh – Ebooks, Instagram accounts, Facebook posts. There's some Facebook posts on diet types coming up. Oh man! Anyway, let's let's throw a few out there. Keto diet. What do we think? Where do I start? I love talking about ketones. I like bacon, so I like keto diet. Well, hang on a minute. Let's dial back here. So, (laughs) you've had some experience with keto, I believe. Is that right? I'm a bit of a fan of keto. What was your every podcast? I know because I want you to talk about it. So, what's your because you've never talked about? I stay in my lane. Yeah, but no, no, no. But this is your experience. You're happy. You you. You're not giving dietary advice here. You're I found talking keto about your a very easy way for a guy that's nearly 50 to eat. Yeah. So what did you do? Literally. I pretty much I ran a 75 fat micelle protein. 75 percent. Protein was a little bit higher than probably a traditional keto diet. I was at about 20. 20 percent protein. And five carbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be honest, once I got into keto, I didn't find that five that hard to. I didn't really. I didn't crave a lot of 
carbohydrate foods after mm. about three yeah. weeks. And so how did you... Day three, I wanted to kill myself. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to do that, but it was, I felt terrible. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're not supportive so, of that. Keto flu sort of one situation. of the worst things I've ever had. Yeah. And so how long did it take you to... I apologise to my staff right now for those days too. How did you... Uh, so that's a process and that's pretty common. Yeah. Harry, yeah. You know, most people's... There's, there's a process of adaptation that needs to take place. Yeah. Because we're fundamentally shifting the fuel source. Well, that's the whole premise of what we're talking about here, is shifting a fuel source from glucose yeah. by overwhelmingly the preferred go-to of the body to, you know, oxidize or fat fundamentally. Yeah. That process can take a period of time yeah. and will take a period of time. And I think it's important, I suppose, to get a couple of definitions out there before you'd go any further because there's a couple of different things. Like, you know, what, what are ketones? Yeah. We've got beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetone. So they're the two two mm. major ones right yeah. that we're working with. <laughs> and so basically they're a... They're a Exogenous fuel, uh, sorry, endogenous fuel. So the body makes them um, itself, and they're caused, they're produced by fat mobilisation. So when we're burning more fat, byproduct of which are ketones, we've got the two different types, and then we can look at whether you know there's different types of ketosis. So we're looking at ketosis from dietary, so nutritional ketosis. Did I get into ketosis by having a high fat diet? Did I get into ketosis via fasting? Or then there's the third, which is exogenous ketones. So generally speaking, we're consuming a normal diet, but we are also consuming ketones from a little sachet, which will technically put our body in ketosis. And I think also it's important to look at, okay, what is what would be classified as ketosis? So I think the definition is somewhere in the city of 0.5 millimolar blood level of mm. ketones. And that's yep. a really important point when you start looking at research around exogenous ketones that we'll get out there to start off with. But I think we can probably keep going on that conversation. Mm. I just pee on a little stick. You, you peed on a stick? Yeah. yeah. You looked for a little bit of colour change and went... Nice job. Emma, how long did it take you to get into ketosis? For me, it was a couple of weeks, so actually. So you purely was – it was a, a, a diet-based diet. – you didn't use any estrogen. No, 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 I didn't. No, no, I, went, I went straight yeah. food path. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, And I also – Did you intermittently – I did. I started getting into – because I, I, my cravings for crap stopped. Yeah. You know, and that drive to, gee, what's in the cupboard? What have the kids got tomorrow that I can rip off before yeah, they get their lunchbox done? Yeah, was very much taken away from me at about week three, yep. I'd say. I pretty much went into, I wasn't really eating until about two o'clock in the hour, but apart from, I love my coffee. Yep. I was having my coffee MCT. Yep. Maybe a little bit of cream on those days where I felt like. So you're having that in the morning? When yeah. fasting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, during that. During that yeah, so technically state. that breaks your fast. Well, it would because yeah. there's some serious calories in that, which a lot of people don't realise they're drinking. Delicious yeah. calories. But it was very cream. yummy. If you put cream and MCT oil in your coffee, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. You'll pump yeah. up the but caloric it's, intake. It's interesting. So normally if done either fasting or via dietary manipulation, you should get into ketosis after two or three days Yeah, just as a you know as a thing. And, but also if you're looking at it from a lifestyle change, it will take you a few weeks. So it did take – I'm, I'm – I'm, 49, and obviously... Looking fantastic. You know, I don't oh, even... 
I'm hoping for to get an invitation back. Wow. <laughs> so, so just thought, yeah, so you didn't take any ketone. So there's ketone esters and there's ketone salts. I did not. Look, I've done um, a fair bit of work on that and I'm not actually hmm. going to go there right now personally because Taking them. I'm a fair, I'm, I've got a fair bit of knowledge on the actual ingredient sources that are coming out at the moment. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, well, it's, the only comment I was going to make on those was that fundamentally, uh, and this is Dom D'Agostino's work again, who's a prolific well, he's probably the guy. Is that yeah. the NASA guy? Yeah, in terms of ketones being almost another macro. So yeah. ketone esters, which I've tried, taste really bad, mm. really, really bad. And the ketone salts, there's a few different types. There's the, you know, there's the sodium, there's the calcium, magnesium, and potassium salts yeah. that are all your gut tolerance is a big deal. I find yeah. with with trying to take these things and how they affect the exit strategy of what you put in. But anyway, so one of the things Don like was saying, and not to, not to sort of paraphrase, but you know, you're looking at about six, uh, calories per gram for an ester versus about four for a salt, mm-hmm. for a ketone salt. So depending on how many of these you're having and, and what you're doing with them, mm. you know, you need to qual- um, calculate that into your overall caloric intake yeah. potentially. They're not. Calorie-free. They're not calorie-free is probably the thing. And, and another, um, another point there before we sort of go on is how much of the exogenous ketones do you need to have to get into ketosis? Mm. And that's a really important one. So a lot of the research... You mean about, what's on the label isn't right? Well, well, well there's a question as to whether or not it's just... That? Do you just have a lot of ketones in your urine because yeah. you've just put them in and they're just coming straight back out yeah. versus are you genuinely in ketosis? Exactly. But when you look at the research, so Degostino and I think Stubbs, Brown Stubbs in the UK, they, she's got the human, HVMAN, that they're bringing out. Their research is done using ketone esters mm-hmm. and they have the ability to raise blood ketones above that 025 Within a couple of like quite quite quickly. Yeah. Okay. When can I I ask you a question there? Yes. Why is that helping me lose weight? There's a couple of different mechanisms we're looking Mm -hmm. at in terms of weight loss. I think with ketones, um, obviously you're reducing potentially reducing food sources, so you might be reducing total calorie intake. You are utilizing fat stores as energy because the body is basically. If you look at the body's makeup. Our number one task is not to die. So, fan of that one. You know, that's yeah. everything. Uh, it's, Maybe you know, I can it's, die more. <laughs> it's a, it's, it gives you a really good baseline of understanding. There's a lot of different mechanisms going on inside of our body that are geared towards making us not die. Our blood runs on glucose uh, as a primary fuel source. However, if in a starvation state, which could have happened a few hundred years ago, but probably is not going to happen today. I would like to be able to search out food for longer once my glycogen stores had been depleted from being in a starved state. So if I'm fasting, basically, if I'm fasting and I need to go find food, I need to be, stay switched on long enough for my body to get me to the fuel source, to stay lucid enough to, you know, to get to that food as soon as possible so I don't die. Basically, ketones are the byproduct of fat utilization. So you know that when you're burning fat as energy, we're chipping into the stores rather than eating food. We're using what our body's got. And in doing that, ketones, our body can't use fat, our brain can't use fat. There's a barrier there, blood-brain barrier. So the difference is basically that uh, ketones are water-soluble and they can actually go through the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that although our body, our brain might not have any glucose to access, worst-case scenario, 
um, starvation mode. We can use ketones for survival. And, you know, some people, and, and ketones can also be used by pretty much every tissue in the body. So heart can use ketones. We can use it. The argument is whether or not it's the optimal fuel or not. People will say that it is. It gives them, you know, clear thinking. It gives them, like, it's like high octane fuel for the brain is some of the things that you hear. I and, definitely got that. I feel good. I did. Yeah. So I, I'm in, still with the brain, with, the brain side yeah, of it. Felt, yeah. And there's right. a bit of a high associated with fasting. That's yeah. another thing. You go yeah. into this, like, this sort of euphoric state, and people actually get, like, a little bit addicted to that. Yeah. And I think that, and there's another, the other, one of the other mechanisms is around that. I mentioned that oxyacetate before, precursor for glutamate, which is a precursor fundamentally for GABA, which is a neurotransmitter. So there's a there's a whole lot of stuff going on in terms of the role of the, the ketones and the improved brain function fundamentally. Yeah, anyway, so from a weight loss, yeah. like long and short, that was a really, you know, what I was saying. It was a really, really long, long answer. Answer about basically using fat as energy yep. over carbohydrates. Yep. And so you're chipping into your body's fat stores. There's also potentially a, a, sat, a satiating effect. So when I say satiating, I mean increased ketone levels may decrease appetite. So that's another aspect that is, it's sort of anecdotal at this stage, but there is some um, research. I think Stubbs are doing some research about the actual perceived satisfaction having eaten a higher fat meal. Okay. And so you're going to be less driven to eat as well. Nice. But I've, we do need to look at, okay, whether ketone esters are commercially available, which they're not. We get ketone salts. Hmm. To get my blood ketone levels high enough to be in ketosis, I need to be consuming two or three packets. Then I'm also consuming a lot of sodium, a lot of salts associated with ketone salts. So, you know, you can do it, but there's a lot of GI distress that is like a tummy upset, basically, associated with a high sodium load. So you do find people, in order to get into the ketosis via the sachets, getting a lot of tummy upset because they're just consuming a lot of basically like salt on very quickly, and that's going to cause like it's like you know yeah. sucking down some ocean water. And I think some and of us as well for a bit more salt on the keto diet. Kidneys potentially. Uh, yeah. I'm probably not really across that one. Are you? No, I, I just I know kid, um, kidney stones are, are a pretty common side effect. I don't want any of those things. No. So on the salts, uh, I know a lot of the companies will mix a an MCT powder in with uh, whether it's a, a sodium or whether it's a calcium, whatever it might be, that'll delay some of the gastric absorption and help with some of the gut tolerance. Uh, and then with respect to the kidneys, I know uh, kidney stones are, are a big deal with the keto diet. And so I, I've read some stuff around the use of uh, potassium citrate as a, and staying really hydrated and maybe even supplementing with some magnesium to alleviate some of those effects. Okay, nice. Anyone here been paleo before oh look i've dabbled just Dabble? for i'm a i'm a scientist mm. i like to give things a go so uh, i think i'd probably about six months was post bodybuilding so i was looking for my next fix yep. um, and paleo was just coming through nerding out on a few of the paleo podcasts um, and yeah so i gave it a go probably for about yeah six months i was having a just an experiment with the old paleo i think the thing that i found when it came to my training i couldn't necessarily like I couldn't push myself as hard in my training like, you lift. body composition yeah I lift and yeah. I, I like to keep fit like you know, I'd like to be able to just do a 5k run if I need to at any one stage like I don't it's not you're a traditionally strong woman though aren't strong you? woman yeah I, and I was a rower as well okay. I used to do surf boat rowing okay so when it came to sprinting not great I uh, didn't feel as good when I was doing heavy training loads basically so what type of human would you suggest a paleo diet to look there are benefits 
to the paleo approach, I think one of the biggest ones is that it's emphasising whole foods. It's really getting people to inspect what they're putting in their mouth. There are ways of making it available to everyone. I don't think, you know, cutting out whole food groups, in my mind, is not all, it's not necessary. Like, I think the work around grains, like, I get that, you know, we're looking at phytates impairing, you know, mineral absorption. We're looking at, you know, causing gut issues. A lot of people turn to the paleo diet when they've got stomach issues. And, and look, it's not my area of expertise. The gut issues, I know there's plenty of people who work in the area of FODMAPs, which is a really interesting thing. IBS is a very complicated area of work because we're looking at people who are experiencing, like, quite distressing bowel issues basically so you know paleo is one of those ones that pops up when people like they go to when they're experiencing like autoimmune diseases gut issues and i'm not necessarily a proponent of all out cutting out whole food groups i did it like i i cut out grains what we're missing out on is you know there's some b vitamins associated with whole grains it's hard to get your fiber intake which does have an implication on bowel movements as well but and then there's the dairy aspect as well so i think you know when people can tolerate dairy i don't see why you know i understand there's you know research around how dairy is bad for you and there's a couple of big studies that are underpin the paleo approach that look when you dig a little bit deeper aren't necessarily the most rigorous like i think we're better with research now than we ever have been Mm -hmm. and if we were to go and do those research studies again we may very well find different results so when i'm looking at an athlete the first thing that I'm looking at for them is what one of the big ones is going to be calcium intake yep. because they're undertaking a lot of high intensity and in some cases high impact sports. And it's all well and good, you know, for a 20 something year old to be cutting out dairy. But I see the client when they're 50 something and they've got, you know, early stage osteoporosis. And I'm not saying calcium is the only mineral in the picture of bone health because definitely, you mm. know, you've got. It's a big topic, isn't it? Yeah, it's a big topic. It's yeah. a big yep. topic. And so, uh, look, to cover it in, you know, it could take, you know, we could do like three podcast on it but i think you know what the benefits are that it, it does really make you stop and think about the quality of your diet and i think they do a really good job at emphasizing unprocessed foods whole foods gets people back in the kitchen it gets people preparing their meals and actually you know giving a few more poops about um <laughs> technical term <laughs> their, their bowels and their diet oh. um, <laughs> someone had to throw it in there come yeah. on <laughs> well i guess that leads into the next big one if it fits your macros, the, the whole flexible dieting charge. Bruh. So I've gone paleo now, I'm eating everything. So well, they're two different things, aren't they? they Isn't are. If it fits your macros and flexible dieting, are not, they're not the same thing. Yep. Well, okay. look, they're, they're rooted in the same sort of theory. Mm-hmm. However, the uh, the ethos behind them, I think, is different. One's a so, cleaner than the other. Yeah. So I what's think, your what's your uh, interpretation, Harriet? Look, I think, you know, the if it fits your macros is probably... That's my Saturday and Sunday diet, just yeah, so you know. I can yeah. make everything fit my macros. <laughs> Basically, what we're looking at is carbs, fats, proteins as being our macronutrients. Yep. Carbs having four calories per gram, protein four calories per gram, fats nine calories per gram. I need, say, 2,000 calories. Alcohol as a, as a caloric um, food group, Greg? Normally, if you drink it, I don't. No. No. Right. Sorry. No, that's incorrect, right. though. I'll just put that out there. Sorry, I was interrupting. Uh, no, that's okay. You know, alcohol's got seven calories per gram. I wouldn't say it's a macro. If it is a macro in your life, then we need to talk. Mm. But basically, okay. you know, you've got a calorie budget. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> 
you've got a daily calorie budget and you break down, okay, how many grams of protein, carbs, fats do I need? Can I stop you there? And I don't like stopping people when they're on a roll because it takes – how am I calculating that? Well, there's a few different equations you can use. Gold standard would be you would get them on a, you know, a a metabolic chamber and we'd be calculating their respiratory ratio. I don't have one of those in my pocket. So, look, there's there's some equations that you can use. There's a lot of sort of useful online calculators. I see a lot of calculators. I often wonder – who calculated those? They're based on population data. Yeah. So there's a Paris Benedict one, which would be an athletic population. Then you've just got oh, the name escapes me. There's a there's a standard one that would use for general population. Yeah. One of the ways I would actually get people to calculate their daily intake, their usual intake, is actually track, like keep a food diary, like gives them some training on how to keep a food diary, and then get them to keep it like look three day minimum. But if they can keep it for a week without sort of getting mad at me I do get people to look at because then I actually can see are you overeating habitually are you under eating habitually and it gives me a probably more accurate picture so once I know what their calorie budget is we look at okay am I trying to gain muscle am I trying to cut weight you know we create a calorie deficit say and I'm telling them I'm prescribing okay you need to hit, it doesn't matter how you get the calories but you need to hit 100 grams of protein 250 grams of carbs and 60 grams of protein I don't care how you get it just get it and you're going to lose weight because you're in a calorie deficit, which in and of itself is not unreasonable. The only issue I have with that approach is that people flaunt it and they will start saying, well, you know, I can fit a Mars bar, some Pop-Tarts, a pizza and, you know, no... Size up, I mean. Yeah, 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 100%. Well, uh, yeah, and a, and a carb's not a carb, right? From a glycemic index perspective, yeah. you know, you've got huge variation yeah. around insulin responses yeah. so to different carbohydrate sources and things like the that. The approach top level doesn't really take into account that their food quality basically like i could i could quite Where flexible dieting comes into play it does flexible dieting like uh, it's not this look there's not really a textbook definition of it but i think there's a book definition there's probably a few ebooks i think the ethos behind it does give more emphasis on food quality making sure that okay this is your calorie budget these are your macros you need to hit, but you also need to be having vegetables with every meal. You yep. need to divvy out your protein across the day. You need to be prioritizing good quality carbohydrates. So, like that's like it's very it's little little things like that. But I think as a as a tool, it is actually something that I've used with people quite successfully and myself. So. I've stuck to meal plans before. When I was bodybuilding, I was on a very rigid piece of paper diet. It was the same foods for 12 months. Wow, um, that would have been, you would have been fun to hang around. Oh, man, I was the life of the party. <laughs> Just doing my master's and a calorie deficit. It was so good. Oh, wow. But I, I actually use a flexible dieting approach now for cutting weight into competitions yep. because it means that I'm not restricting any one food group. Okay. I know that I need and to That's have, a big thing for dietitians, isn't it? Yeah, restricting food because, like, you don't know that, you know, today I might be restricting a food group, but I don't know what the long-term implications of potential nutrient deficiencies may occur because I'm cutting out a whole food group. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of anyone's guess how that's actually going to play out. And disease progression doesn't start when you're 20. You get the diagnosis when you're 50, 60, mm. which is a bit grim, but it's like, well, when did it start? And normally it, it, it starts a lot earlier than we get a diagnosis for something that might have been co- occurred from a deficiency or poor eating habits. But basically, yeah, so the EFA fits your macros, flexible dieting approaches, basically, you know, everything's on the table. You don't have to be as restrictive. As long as you can do it in a responsible fashion that, you know, emphasizes whole foods, fruit and vegetable intake, lean meats, 
whole grains, the usual stick. Mm. It can actually be a way of manipulating calorie intake whilst having a little bit of what you fancy on a regular basis, which for me generally has more positive outcomes for the person because they're not saying this is toxic, this is bad. It removes a few of those food labels that I find can be quite negative. It's good. A bit of compliance, yeah. all that sort of thing. I'm going to throw yeah. one more in. Is that okay? Yep. Time-restricted eating and fasting. You're a fan of the fasting, aren't you, Maka? Yes. I consider myself a intermittent keto-modified fasting diurnal nutrition carnival. carnival. Where yeah. can I buy that ebook? I know it's in uh, it's in press. It's on its way. Not a problem. A, uh, but yeah, I, I think you know from an insulin mis- you know, I think there's a couple of keys around if you think from a weight loss perspective, yeah. got to control insulin. I think it's fundament rudimentary to the whole process and caloric restriction is probably the other piece of the puzzle. You can't get away from that, I don't think. That's in every diet, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's this principle. Let's be honest. Fundamentally, oh you can't really get away from it. You know, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter any of the ones we've already talked about. You know, somewhere, somehow, you've got to be in a calorically restricted eating pattern, so yeah. to think. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read a lot around diurnal pattern of eating. and You love that word, don't you? Diurnal. I say it all the time. But, I mean, it's, it matters. I, you know, I think in terms of... You know, some shifts in microbiome throughout the day, digestibility of different foods. You know, there's a whole range. And there's some pretty cool stuff that's happening in that space. And the intermittent fasting as opposed to my read on intermittent fasting versus time-restricted feeding, and this is just my read on it, is that there's no change in my caloric intake with the um, the time-restricted feeding. Mm-hmm. So if whatever the caloric intake, it's in that block of time. And I know the original... A lot of the original work in the time-restricted patterning was as about a 16-hour fast mm. and about an, an eight-hour food window, of eating window. And and I quote Sachin Panda all the time and uh, Walter Longo, that that window is perhaps not as narrow as we originally thought. So okay. even a 12 and 12 type of pattern, I think, based on what I've seen, is a pretty reasonable approach to that. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm genuinely a fan. And I like to cycle everything. So whether it's training, sups, different protein sources, whatever it might be, you know, mix it up. So it'd be the same with, like, I think uh, I just grew up modified keto, paleo, carnivore my whole life. Grew up on a farm, ate a lot of meat, didn't eat a lot of veggies. You know, that's just what we did, right? Meat and two veggies at your house? No. Meat and two meats. Three veg. A meat and two meats. Oh, three meat. veg. Sorry, my apologies. Well, no. Vegetable serves. Yeah, okay. I'm a fan of that sort of thing in terms of you know, and I, I think about you know the the central oscillator, and we've got these peripheral regulators of everything works on the time on the clock, so to speak, from a from our suprachiasmatic nucleus, which I roll oh, out I'm all the time. But we're not going to roll that out. But I mean, everything's on a, <laughs> everything is on that central central regulator yeah. in terms of how our body works across all our organs and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think there's merit in that. And and certainly my other thing that I, while I'm on a little rant, is around we love uh, fasted cardio. I'm, I'm Good head there. Hear about yeah. Well, no, my rant is that most people aren't even fasted. How much cardio have you done? Like, let's start Me? There. Well, I walked up the stairs to get here okay. and that was, and I walked in from my car okay. so there's the cardio component of my day for the week but um so if you think about how we deplete the liver of glycogen yep. you're looking at 10 12 14 hours yeah, well, ballpark or uh, exhaustive training or exhaustive training but if you're just relying on your sleep yep. overnight 
and getting up at 6am and you yeah. say you're doing your fasted cardio, yeah, you're not you better have gone to bed pretty early <laughs> and eaten pretty early. And done some sprints before And bed. done a ton of sprints before you went to bed. That's my bug bet. Yeah. Oh, I, man. You know, it started on... I think you guys are wrong. I've been on Instagram. Everybody yeah, well, cardio, you're doing morning cardio, and, and you know what? You guys are awesome. Wrong. You know, yeah. that's great. If you can get up and get get going, fantastic. Yeah, we celebrate that, I agree. Yeah, yeah, celebrate that every day, but that's not faster cardio. Okay. I'm really sorry. Anyway, that's my little that's my little rant. Yeah, I don't I think, know what Harriet's perspective like, is on look, it. Long and short, like we eat for a lot of hours in the day, probably more than we used to. Like, and you know, sleeping in and of itself is a fast. Like, I, I think there's. You know, fasting and 5-2 and those uh, different ways of manipulating and shuffling calories around, it's a tool in the toolbox. I think it suits some people and if that's what works for them and they're prioritising good foods, it's going to be a benefit. I think if you can have dinner at 7 p.m. and then you're not eating until 7 a.m. or even 8 a.m., you've got an S, like, you know, there's a amount of fasting in and of that. So you don't necessarily have to be doing hardcore fasting. And I think the actual hardcore fasting for the wrong people doesn't have positive impact. And I think, I mean, there's a population that I'm thinking of where I wouldn't recommend fasting. And that's probably a whole other podcast. But I think, you know, the di- giving a digestive system a break, 100%. Yep. Like, I think we, a big thing these we days, have access it? to food a lot. And yeah. there's something to be said for just a little... Yeah, feel, Give it a rest. Like, people forget what it is like to feel hungry. They, they actually forget their body's cues. Mm. And, I you know, I often get people to try and, you know, uh, tune in a little bit better to their to their body cues because it's actually probably the easiest way to regulate your diet is eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Mm. But, like, that's that, – I can't sell a book on that. No. Unfortunately. There's a population to buy that. <laughs> How to listen to your body cues. <laughs> madness. Absolute yeah. madness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. crazy. Well, I'm going to wrap that up. Yeah, nice. I think yeah, that's I think a good that's... one. Harry, thank you so much for coming. We're Absolute actually going to get you down to do another one. We might um, go a little bit of a live example. So those next. compliments worked. Yeah, you did well. Wow. Catch you go, Mac. You reckon she's oh, right? on fire? Oh, really well. She stayed her lane. She was well within her lane. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Swimmer, I hope I stayed in mine. I think you stayed in yours. <laughs> she's not a big swimmer, me either. So we're all good. But, no, thank you. Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Awesome. This podcast was brought to you by one of our favourite products, Hydroxyburn Lean 5, available at ASN Nationally, Sporties, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay and Rock Hard Supplements.